On a cold, fretful afternoon in early October 1872, a handsome cab drew up outside the offices of Lockhart and Selby, shipping agents in the financial heart of London, and a young girl got out and paid the driver. She was a person of sixteen or so, alone and uncommonly pretty. She was slender and pale, and dressed in mourning with a black bonnet under which she tucked back a straying twist of blonde hair that the wind had teased loose. She had unusually dark brown eyes for one so fair. Her name was Sally Lockhart, and within fifteen minutes she was going to kill a man. She stood looking up at the building for a moment, and then climbed the three steps and entered. There was a drab corridor facing her with a porter's office on the right, where an old man sat in front of a fire reading a penny dreadful. She tapped on the glass, and he sat up guiltily, thrusting the magazine down beside his chair. "'Beg pardon, miss,' he said. "'Didn't see you come in.' "'I've come to see Mr. Selby,' she said. "'But he wasn't expecting me.' "'Name, please, miss.' "'My name is Lockhart. My father was... Mr. Lockhart.' "'He became friendlier at once. "'Miss Sally, is it? You've been here before, miss.' "'Have I? I'm sorry, I don't remember.' "'Must have been uh, ten years ago, at least. "'You sat by my fire and had a ginger biscuit "'and told me all about your pony. "'You've forgotten already?' "'Dear me, I, I was very sorry to hear about your father, miss. "'That was a terrible thing, the ship going down like that. "'He was a real gentleman, miss.' "'Yes, thank you. "'It was partly about my father that I came. "'Is Mr Selby in? Can I see him?' "'Well, I'm afraid he ain't, miss. "'He's in the West India docks on business, "'but Mr Higgs is here, the company secretary, miss. "'He'll be glad to talk to you.' "'Thank you. I'd better see him, then.' "'The porter rang a bell, and a small boy appeared, "'like a sudden solidification of all the grime in the Cheapside air. "'His jacket was torn in three places, "'his collar had come adrift from the shirt, "'and his hair looked as if it had been used for an experiment "'with the powers of electricity.' "'What do you want?' said this apparition, whose name was Jim. "'Mind your manners,' said the porter. "'Take this young lady up to see Mr Higgs, and smartish. "'This is Miss Lockhart.' "'The boy's sharp eyes took her in for a moment, "'and then flicked back suspiciously to the porter. "'You got my Union Jack,' he said. "'I seen your eyed it when Higgsy come in earlier.' "'I ain't,' said the porter, without conviction. "'Get on and do as you're told.' "'I'll have it,' said the boy. "'You wait. You ain't stealing my property.' "'Come on in,' he added to Sally, and withdrew. "'You'll have to forgive him, Miss Lockhart,' said the porter. "'You weren't caught young enough to tame that one.' "'I don't mind,' said Sally. "'Thank you. I'll look in and say goodbye before I go.' The boy was waiting for her at the foot of the staircase. "'Was the bus your old man?' he said as they climbed. "'Yes,' she said, meaning to say more, but not finding the words. He was a good bloke. It was a gesture of sympathy, she thought, and felt grateful. Do you know anyone called Marchbanks? she said. Is there a Mr Marchbanks who works here? No, never heard the name before. Or have you ever heard... They were near the top of the stairs now, and she stopped to finish the question. Have you ever heard of... The Seven Blessings. 
I? Please, she said. It's important. No, I ain't, he said. Sounds like a pub or something. What is it? It's just something I heard. It's nothing. Forget it, please, she said, and moved up to the top of the stairs. Where do I find Mr. Higgs? In here, he said, knocking thunderously at a panelled door. Without waiting for an answer, he opened it and called, Lady to see Mr. Higgs, name of Miss Lockhart. She entered, and the door closed behind her. The room was full of a fug of cigar smoke and an atmosphere of polished leather, mahogany, silver inkwells, drawers with brass handles and glass paperweights. A portly man was trying to roll up a large wall map on the other side of the room and gleaming with effort. His pate gleamed, his boots gleamed, the masonic seal on the heavy gold watch chain over his paunch gleamed, and his face was shiny with heat and red with years of wine and food. He finished rolling the map and looked up. His expression became solemn and pious. Miss Lockhart, daughter of the late Matthew Lockhart? Yes, said Sally. He spread out his hands. My dear Miss Lockhart, he said, I can only say how sorry, how truly sorry all of us were to hear of your sad loss. A fine man, a generous employer, a Christian gentleman, a gallant soldier, a, um, a great loss. A sad and, and tragic loss. She inclined her head. You are very kind, she said. But I wonder if I could ask you something. My dear! He had become expansive and genial. He pulled out a chair for her and stood with his broad backside to the fire, beaming like an uncle. Anything that is in my power will be done, I guarantee. Well, it's not that I want anything done. It's simpler than that. It's just... Well, did my father ever mention a Mr. Marchbanks? Do you know anyone of that name? He appeared to consider it with great attention. Marchbanks, he said. Marchbanks. There is a ship's chandler in Rotherhithe called that, spelt Marjorie Banks, you know. Would that be the one? I don't recall your poor father ever having dealings with him, though. It may be, said Sally. Do you know his address? Tasmania Wharf, I believe, said Mr. Higgs. Thank you. And there was something else. It sounds silly. I shouldn't be bothering you, really, but... My dear Miss Lockhart, anything that can be done will be done. Just tell me how I can help. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, the seven blessings? Then something extraordinary happened. Mr. Higgs was a large, well-fed man, as we have remarked, so perhaps it was not Sally's words so much as the years of port and Cuban cigars and rich dinners that preceded them which made him crumple at the heart and gasp for air. He took a step forward. Then darkness flooded his face, his hands clutched at his waistcoat, and he fell with a crash to the turkey carpet. One foot kicked and twitched five times, hideously. His open eye was pressed to the carved claw foot of the chair she sat in. She did not move, nor did she scream or faint. Her only actions were to draw back the hem of her dress 
from where it brushed the shiny dome of his skull and to breathe deeply several times with her eyes shut. Her father had taught her this as a remedy for panic. He had taught her well. It worked. When she was calm again, she stood up carefully and stepped away from the body. Her mind was in turmoil, but her hands, she noticed, were perfectly steady. Good, she thought. When I am frightened, I can rely on my hands. The discovery pleased her absurdly, and then she heard a loud voice in the corridor. Samuel Selby, shipping agent, got that? it said. Now, Mr Lockhart, said another voice, more timidly. That ain't no Mr Lockhart. Mr Lockhart's lying in a hundred fathoms of water in the South China Sea. Blast him. I mean, rest his soul. Paint him out, do you hear me? Paint him out, and I don't like green. A nice cheerful yellow for me, with them curly lines all around. Stylish. You got that? Yes, Mr Selby, was the reply. The door opened, and the owner of the first voice came in. He was a short, stout man with a quiff of straw-coloured hair and ginger Dunreary whiskers that clashed unpleasantly with the high colour of his cheeks. He looked around and failed to see the body of Mr Higgs, which was concealed from him by the broad mahogany desk. Instead, his fierce little eyes rested on Sally. "'Who are you?' he demanded. "'Who let you in?' "'The porter,' she said. "'What's your name? What do you want?' "'I am Sally Lockhart.' "'Lockhart?' he gave a low whistle. "'Mr. Selby, I—' "'Where's Higgs? He can deal with you. Higgs, come out here!' "'Mr. Selby, he's dead.' He fell silent and saw where she was pointing. Then he came round the desk. "'What's going on? When, when did this happen?' "'A moment ago we were talking and suddenly he fell. Perhaps his heart. "'Mr. Selby, may I sit down?' "'Oh, go on, then!' Damn fool! Not you, him. Why can't he have the decency to die on his own floor? I suppose he is dead. Have you looked? I don't think he can still be alive. Mr Selby hauled the body aside and peered into the dead man's eyes, which stared unpleasantly upwards. Sally said nothing. Dead as mutton, said Mr Selby. Have to call the police now, I suppose. Blast it! What did you want here, anyway? They packed up all your father's stuff and sent it off to the lawyer. There ain't nothing here for you. Something prompted Sally to be careful. She took out a handkerchief and dabbed at her eyes. I... I just wanted to see my father's office, she said. Mr Selby grunted suspiciously and opened the door and yelled downstairs for the porter to call a policeman. A clerk, passing the open door with an armful of ledgers, looked in, craning his neck. Sally stood up. "'May I leave now?' "'Not likely,' said Mr Selby. "'You're a witness, you are. "'You'll have to have your name and address took "'and turn up at the inquest. "'What do you want to see the office for, anyway?' "'Sally sniffed loudly "'and dabbed more extravagantly at her eyes. "'She wondered if she might venture a sob. "'She wanted to be away and to think, "'and she was beginning to be afraid "'of this fierce little man's curiosity. "'If mentioning the seven blessings "'had really killed Mr Higgs,' She had no wish to risk Mr. Selby's reaction. But the crying was a good idea. Mr. Selby was not subtle enough to suspect it and waved her away in distaste. "'Oh, go and sit in the porter's room,' he said impatiently. "'The copper will want a word with you, but there's no point in hanging about here, snivelling. Go on, go downstairs.' She left. 
On the landing, two or three clerks had gathered, and they stared after her with great curiosity. In the porter's room, she found the office boy reclaiming his penny dreadful from behind the post box. It's all right, he said. I won't give you away. I heard you kill old Iggsy, but I ain't going to tell him. I didn't, she said. Of course you did. I heard through the door. You were listening. That's horrible. Well, I didn't mean to. I, I felt tired all of a sudden, so I leant against the door and somehow the words seemed to come through, he said with a grin. He died of fright, old Iggsy. Struck dead with terror. Whatever them seven blessings is, he knew all right. You'd better be careful who you ask about it. She sat down in the porter's chair. I just don't know what to do, she said. Do about what? She looked at his bright eyes and determined face and decided to trust him. It's this, she said. It arrived this morning. She opened her bag and took out a crumpled letter. It was posted from Singapore. That was the last place my father was before the ship sank. But it's not his writing. I don't know who it's from. Jim opened it. The letter said, Sally, beware of the seven blessings. March banks will help. Chatum, beware, darling. Blimey, he said. Tell you what, he can't spell. Do you mean my name? What's your name? Sally. Oh, no, this. He pointed to the word Chatum. What should it be? Do you know it? C-H-A-T-H-A-M, of course. Chatham in Kent. I suppose it could be. And it's Marchbanks lives there. Bet you. That's why he puts it in. Yeah, he said, seeing Sally glance upwards. You don't want to worry about old Hicksy. Because if you hadn't said it to him, someone else would have eventually. He was guilty of something, hundred to one. And old Selby is too. You ain't said anything to him. She shook her head. Only to you. But I don't even know your name. Jim Taylor. And if he wants to find me, it's 13 Fortune Buildings, Clerkenwell. I'll help you. Will you, really? You bet. Well, if... If you hear anything, write to me care of Mr Temple of Lincoln's Inn. The door opened and the porter came in. Are you all right, miss? He said. What a terrible thing. Here, you, he said to Jim. Stop skulking in here. The copper wants a doctor so far to certify the death. Go on, hop it, and find a doctor. Jim winked at Sally and left. The porter went straight for the post box and cursed when he found nothing behind it. Young blackguard, he muttered. I might have known it. Would you like a cup of tea, miss? I don't suppose Mr Selby thought of that, did he? No, thank you. I ought to be going. My aunt will be getting anxious. Did the policeman want to see me? I expect he will in a minute. He'll come down here when he wants you. What, uh How was it, uh, Mr Higgs? We were talking about my father, said Sally. And he suddenly... Weak heart, said the porter. My brother was took the same last Christmas. He ate a big dinner and lit a cigar and then fell face down in a bowl of nuts. Oh, I, I beg your pardon, Miss I, uh, I don't mean to dwell on it. Sally shook her head. Presently the policeman came and took her name and address and then left. She stayed a minute or two longer with the old porter, but remembering Jim's warning, she said nothing to him about the letter from the East Indies, which was a pity, because he might have been able to tell her something.
So it was not Sally's intention to kill, despite the gun she carried in her bag. The real cause of Mr. Higgs's death, the letter, had arrived only that morning, forwarded by the lawyer to the house in Peveril Square, Islington, where Sally was living. The house belonged to a distant relative of her father's, a grim widow called Mrs. Rees. Sally had been living there since August, and she was unhappy about it. But she had no choice. Mrs. Rees was her only living relative. Her father had died three months before, when the schooner Lavinia had sunk in the South China Sea. He had gone out there to look into some odd discrepancies in the reports from the company's agents in the Far East, something that had to be investigated on the spot and could not be checked from London. He had warned her before he went that it might be dangerous. "'I want to speak to our man in Singapore,' he had said. "'He's a Dutchman called Van Eden. I know he's trustworthy. "'If by some chance I don't come back, he'll be able to tell you why.' "'Couldn't you send someone else?' "'No, it's my firm, and I must go myself.' "'But, Father, you must come back.' "'Of course I will. But you must be prepared for... for anything else. I know you'll do it bravely.' Keep your powder dry, my girlie, and think of your mother. Sally's mother had died during the Indian mutiny fifteen years before, shot through the heart by a sepoy's rifle at the same instant that a bullet from her pistol killed him. Sally was a few months old, their only child. Her mother had been a wild, stormy, romantic young woman who rode like a Cossack, shot like a champion, and smoked, to the scandal of the fascinated regiment, tiny black cheroots in an ivory holder. She was left-handed, which was why she was holding the pistol in her left hand, which was why she was clasping Sally with the right, which was why the bullet that struck her heart missed the baby, but it grazed her little arm and left a scar. Sally could not remember her mother, but she loved her, and since then she had been brought up by her father, oddly in the view of various busybodies, but then Captain Matthew Lockhart's leaving the army to take up the unlikely career of shipping agent was odd enough in itself. Mr. Lockhart taught his daughter himself in the evenings and let her do as she pleased during the day. As a result, her knowledge of English literature, French, history, art and music was non-existent, but she had a thorough grounding in the principles of military tactics and bookkeeping, a close acquaintance with the affairs of the stock market, and a working knowledge of Hindustani. Furthermore, she could ride well, though her pony would not agree to the Cossack procedure, and for her fourteenth birthday her father had bought her a little Belgian pistol, the one she carried everywhere, and taught her to shoot. She was now nearly as good a shot as her mother. She was solitary, but perfectly happy. The only blight on her childhood was the nightmare. This came to her once or twice a year. She would feel herself suffocating in intolerable heat. The darkness was intense, and somewhere nearby a man's voice was screaming in terrible agony. Then out of the darkness a flickering light would appear, like a candle held by someone hurrying towards her, and another voice would cry, Look! Look at him! Dear God, look! But she did not want to look. It was the last thing in the world she wanted to do, and that was the point at which she woke up, drenched in perspiration, suffocating, and sobbing with fear. Her father would come running and calm her down, and presently she would sleep again, 
but it took a day or so for her to feel free of it. Then came her father's voyage and the weeks of separation, and finally the telegram telling of his death. At once her father's lawyer, Mr. Temple, had taken charge. The house in Norwood was shut up, the servants paid off, the pony sold. It seemed that there was some irregularity in her father's will, or in the trust he had set up, and that Sally was consequently going to be much poorer than anyone had thought. She was placed in the care of her father's second cousin, Mrs. Rees, and there she had lived until this morning, when the letter came. She thought until she had opened it that it must be from the Dutch agent, Mr. Van Eden, but the paper was torn and the writing clumsy and childlike. Surely no European businessman would write like that. Besides, it was unsigned. She had gone to her father's office in the hope that someone there would know what it meant. And she had found that someone did. She went back to Peveril Square. She did not think of it as home on the threepenny omnibus, and prepared to face Mrs. Rees. She had not been given a key to the house. This was one of Mrs. Rees's ways of making her feel unwelcome. She had to ring the bell every time she wanted to come in, and the maid, who admitted her, did so always with the air of having been interrupted in some more important task. "'Mrs. Rees is in the drawing-room, miss,' she said primly. "'She says you're to go and see her the minute you get in.' Sally found the lady seated by a thin fire reading a volume of her late husband's sermons. She did not look up when Sally entered, and Sally looked down at her faded gingery hair and loose dead white skin, loathing her. Mrs. Rees was not yet out of her forties, but had found early in life that the role of an aged tyrant suited her well, and played it for all it was worth. She acted as if she were a frail seventy. She had never in her life lifted a finger for herself, or had a single kind thought for others, and she welcomed Sally's presence only for the chance it gave her to bully. Sally stood by the fire and waited, and finally spoke. "'I'm sorry I'm late, Mrs. Rees, but I—' "'Oh, Aunt Caroline! Aunt Caroline!' said the lady irritably. "'I have been told by my lawyer that I am your aunt. "'I did not expect it. "'I did not seek it. "'But I shall not shrink from it.' "'Her voice whined and creaked, thought Sally, "'and she would speak so slowly. "'The maid said you wished to see me, Aunt Caroline. "'I have been applying myself with little success "'to the subject of your future.' "'Do you intend to remain under my care for ever, I wonder? "'Or would five years be sufficient, or ten? "'I am merely trying to establish the scale of things. "'It is plain that you have no prospects, Veronica. "'I wonder if that had crossed your mind. "'What accomplishments have you?' "'Sally hated the name Veronica, "'but Mrs. Rees had said that Sally was a servant's name "'and refused to use it. "'She stood mute now, unable to think of a polite answer, "'and found her hands beginning to shake.' "'Miss Lockhart is endeavouring to communicate with me by means of thought alone, Ellen,' said Mrs. Rees to the maid, who was standing piously inside the door, hands folded and eyes wide with innocence. 
I am supposed to understand her without the intervention of language. My education, alas, did not prepare me for such a task. In my day, we used words very frequently amongst ourselves. We spoke when we were spoken to, for instance. I am afraid I have no accomplishments, Aunt Caroline, said Sally in a low voice. None but modesty, you mean to imply? Or is modesty simply the first of a long list? Surely so excellent a gentleman as your late father would not have left you quite unprepared for life? Sally shook her head helplessly. The death of Mr. Higgs, and now this. I thought so said Mrs. Rees, glinting with a pale triumph. So even the modest goal of governess is barred to you. We shall have to bend our thoughts to something yet more modest, possibly one of my friends, Miss Tullet, perhaps, or Mrs. Ringwood, could in charity find room for a lady's companion. I shall make inquiries among them. Ellen? You may bring the tea. The maid bobbed and left. Sally sat down, heavy-hearted, with the prospect of another evening of sarcasm and malice ahead of her, and the knowledge of mystery and danger outside. The Web Several days went by. There was an inquest which Sally had to attend. Mrs. Rees had arranged, by the merest chance, a visit to her great friend Miss Tullet that morning, and found the inconvenience most vexing. Sally answered the coroner's questions quite truthfully. She had been speaking to Mr. Higgs about her father, she said, when suddenly he had died. No one pressed her closely. She was learning that if she pretended to be weak and frightened, and dabbed at her eyes with a lacy handkerchief, she could turn aside all manner of pressing questions. She disliked this intensely, but she had no other weapons, apart from the pistol. And that was no use against an enemy she could not see. At all events, no one appeared surprised by the death of Mr. Higgs. A verdict of death by natural causes was returned. The medical evidence had disclosed a weakness of the heart, and the case was dealt with in less than half an hour. Sally went back to Islington. Life went back to normal. But there was a difference. Without knowing it, she had shaken the edge of a web, and the spider at the heart of it had woken. Now, while she remained unaware, while she sat, in fact, in the uncomfortable drawing-room of Miss Tullet, and listened to that lady and Mrs. Rees discussing in cat-like terms her own shortcomings. Three events took place, each of which was to shake the web a little more and turn the cold eyes of the spider towards London and towards Sally. Firstly, a gentleman in a cold house read a newspaper. Secondly, an old, what shall we call her, Till we know her better, let us give her the benefit of the doubt and call her lady. An old lady entertained a lawyer to tea. Thirdly, 
a sailor in unhappy circumstances came ashore at the East India docks and looked for a lodging house. The gentleman in question, his servants in the days when he had a full staff had called him the Major, lived on the coast overlooking a grim tract of land that was flooded at high tide, marshy at low and desolate always. The house was empty of all but the bare necessities of life, for the Major's wealth had suffered a wasting disease. It was now on the point of expiring. On this afternoon the Major sat in the bay window of his chilly drawing-room. The room faced north, out to the drab wilderness of water. Grey and cold as it was, something drew him constantly to this side of the house, to watch the waves and the ships that passed further out. But he was not looking out to sea just now. He was reading a newspaper lent him by the only servant who remained, a cook housekeeper so afflicted by drink and dishonesty that no one else would employ her at all. Listlessly he turned the pages, holding the paper up to the fading daylight, so as to defer to the last possible moment the expense of lighting the lamps. His eyes scanned the columns of type with no sign of interest or hope, until he caught sight of a story on an inside page which made him sit up suddenly. The paragraph which interested him most read, The only witness to this sad event was Miss Veronica Lockhart, daughter of the late Mr. Matthew Lockhart, a former partner in the firm. Mr. Lockhart's own death in the wreck of the schooner Lavinia was reported in these pages last August. He read it twice and rubbed his eyes. Then he got up, and went to write a letter. Beyond the Tower of London, between St. Catherine's Docks and Shadwell New Basin, lies the area known as Wapping, a district of docks and warehouses, of crumbling tenements and rat-haunted alleys, of narrow streets where the only doors are at first floor level surmounted by crude projecting beams and ropes and pulleys. The blind brick walls at pavement level and the brutal-looking apparatus above give the place the air of some hideous dungeon from a nightmare, while the light, filtered and dulled by the grime in the air, seems to come from a long way off, as if through a high window set with bars. Of all the grim corners of Wapping, none was grimmer than Hangman's Wharf. Its wharfing days were long gone, though the name remained. Now it consisted of a row of warren-like houses and shops, their rear rooms actually hanging over the river, a ship's chandler, a pawnbroker's, a pie shop, a pub called the Marquis of Granby, and a lodging house. Lodgings, in the East End, is a word that covers a multitude of horrors. At its worst it means a room streaming with damp and poisonous with stench, with a rope stretched across the middle. Those far gone in drink or poverty can pay a penny for the privilege of slumping against this rope, to keep themselves off the floor while they sleep. At its best it means a decent, cleanly place where they change the linen as often as they remember. Somewhere in between there is Holland's lodgings. There a bed for the night would cost you threepence, a bed to yourself fourpence, a room to yourself sixpence, and breakfast a penny. You were never alone at Holland's lodgings. If the fleas disdained your flesh, the bedbugs had no snobbery. They'd take a bite out of anyone. 
To this house came Mr. Jeremiah Blythe, a stout and shady lawyer of Hoxton. His previous business with the owner had been transacted elsewhere. This was his first visit to Hangman's Wharf. His knock brought a child to the door, a child whose only feature seemed to be on that dingy afternoon, a pair of enormous dark eyes. She opened the door a fraction and whispered, Yes, sir? Mr. Jeremiah Blythe, said the visitor. Mrs. Holland is expecting me. The child opened the door wide enough for him to enter, and then seemed to vanish into the gloom of the hallway. Mr. Blythe went in and drummed his fingers on his top hat, and stared at a dusty engraving of the death of Nelson, and tried not to guess at the origin of the stains on the ceiling. Presently there shuffled in, preceded by a smell of boiled cabbage and old cat, the owner of the house. She was a wizened old woman with sunken cheeks, pinched lips and glittering eyes. She held out a claw-like hand to her visitor and spoke, but she might have been speaking in Turkish for all the sense Mr. Blythe could make of it. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am. I, I didn't quite catch—' She crowed and led the way into a tiny parlour where the smell of old cat had been left to gain depth and maturity. Once the door was shut, she opened a little tin box on the mantelpiece and took out a set of false teeth, fitting them into her wrinkled mouth and smacking her lips over them. They were too big for her and looked entirely horrible. "'That's better,' she said. "'I always forgets me teeth indoors.' My poor dear husband's, these were. Real ivory. Made for him out east twenty-five year ago. Look at the workmanship. She bared the brown fangs and grey gums in an animal snarl. Mr. Blythe took a step backwards. And when he died, poor lamb, she went on. They was going into the grave with him, being as he was took so quick. Cholera, he was gone in a weekend, poor duck. But I whipped him out his mouth afore they shut the lid on him. There's years of wearing them teeth, I thought. Mr. Blythe gulped. There, sit down, she said. Make yourself at home. Adelaide! The child materialised. She could not thought Mr. Blythe be older than nine, and so should by law have been at school, for the new board schools had been set up only two years before, making education compulsory for children under thirteen. However, Mr. Blythe's conscience was as wraith-like as the child herself, far too insubstantial to inquire, let alone protest. So his conscience and the child both remained silent while Mrs. Holland gave directions for tea, and then they both vanished again. Turning back to her visitor, Mrs. Holland leant forward, tapped him on the knee, and said, Well, you got the doings, have you? Don't be coy, Mr. Blythe. Open your case and let an old lady in on the secret. Quite, quite, said the lawyer. Though, strictly speaking, there is, of course, no secrecy as such, our arrangement being... Made in, in perfectly legal terms. 
Mr. Blythe's voice had a habit of fading away rather than coming to a stop at the end of a speech. It seemed to suggest that he was open to an alternative proposal that might be made at the last moment. Mrs. Holland was nodding vigorously. That's right, she said. All square and above board, no hanky panky. I won't have that. Go on then, Mr. Blythe. Mr. Blythe opened his leather case and took out some papers. I and I went down to Swaleness on Wednesday last, he said, and secured the agreement of the gentleman to the terms we discussed at our last meeting. He paused there to let Adelaide enter the room with a tea tray. She put it down on a dusty little table, curtsied to Mrs. Holland, and left without a word. While Mrs. Holland poured the tea, Mr. Blythe resumed. The uh, terms. To, to be sure. The article in question is to be deposited with Hammond and Whitgrove, bankers of Winchester Street. The article in question? Don't be coy, Mr. Blythe. Out with it. He looked exquisitely pained at having to name something clearly. He lowered his voice, leant forward in his chair, and looked around before he spoke. The, um, <clears throat> ruby will be deposited at Hammond and Whitgrove's bank to remain there until the death of the gentleman, whereupon, by the terms of his will, duly witnessed by myself and, uh, uh, I, uh, Mrs. Thorpe, O'Shea. A neighbour? Um, a servant, ma'am. Not entirely reliable. Drinks, I understand. But her signature is, of course, valid. <clears throat> the ruby will remain, as I say, with Hammond and Whitgrove until the death of the gentleman, whereupon it will become your property. And that's legal, is it? Perfectly so, Mrs. Holland. No nasty little snags, no... Last-minute surprises? Nothing of the sort, ma'am. I have here a copy of the document, signed by the gentleman himself. It provides, as you see, for every, um, eventuality. She took the paper from him and scanned it eagerly. Seems all right to me, she said. Very well, Mr Blythe. I'm a fair woman. You've done a job of work. I'll pay your fee. What's the damage? Damage, ma'am? Oh, oh, uh, of course. My clerk is preparing an account at the moment, Mrs Holland. I shall see that it is sent in due course. He remained another fifteen minutes or so before leaving. After Adelaide had shown him to the door, making no more noise than a shadow... Mrs. Holland sat for a while in the parlour, reading once again the document that the lawyer had brought her. Then she put away her teeth, after first rinsing them in the teapot, and put on her cloak and set out to look at the premises of Hammond and Whitgrove, bankers of Winchester Street. The third of our new acquaintances was called Matthew Bedwell. He had been second mate on a tramp ship in the Far East, but that was a year or more ago. At the moment, he was in a sorry state.
He was wandering through the maze of dark streets behind the West India docks, a kit bag slung over his shoulder, a thin jacket done up tight against the cold, which he felt keenly, without having the energy to look out something warmer to put on. He had a slip of paper in his pocket with an address on it. From time to time he took this out and checked the name of the street he was in, before putting it back and moving on a little way. Anyone watching him would have thought he was drunk, but there was no smell of alcohol around him, and his speech was not slurred, and his movements were not clumsy. A more compassionate observer would have thought him ill or in pain, and that would have been nearer the mark. But if anyone had seen into his mind, and sensed the chaos that reigned in that dark place, they would have thought it remarkable that he managed to keep going at all. There were two ideas fixed in his consciousness, one which had brought him twelve thousand miles to London, and one which had fought against the first every inch of the way. Then the second idea very nearly vanquished the first. Bedwell was passing through an alley in Limehouse, a narrow, cobbled place, the bricks black with soot and crumbling with damp, when he caught sight of an open door with an old man squatting motionless on the step. The old man was Chinese. He was watching Bedwell, and as the sailor came past he jerked his head slightly and said, "'Want he smoke?' Bedwell felt every cell in his body strain towards the doorway. He swayed and closed his eyes and then said, "'No. No want he.' "'Good number one smoke.' said the Chinaman. No, no, repeated Bedwell, and forced himself onward and out of the alley. Once again he consulted his piece of paper, and once again he moved forward a hundred yards or so before doing it again. Slowly but surely he made his way west through Limehouse and Shadwell, until he found himself in Wapping. Another check, and then a pause. The light was fading. He had little strength left. There was a public house nearby, its yellow gleam cheering the drab pavement and drawing him in like a moth. He paid for a glass of gin and sipped it as if it were medicine, unpleasant but necessary. No, he decided. He could go no further tonight. I'm looking for a lodging house, he said to the barmaid. Any chance of finding one hereabouts? Two doors along, said the barmaid. "'Mrs. Holland's place.' "'But that'll do,' said Bedwell. "'Holland, Mrs. Holland, I'll remember that.' He shouldered his kit bag again. "'Are you all right, dearie?' said the barmaid. "'You don't look too good. "'Treat yourself to another jig. Go on.' He shook his head automatically and went out. Adelaide answered his knock, and led him silently to a room at the back of the house over the river. The walls were sodden with damp, the bed was filthy, but he knew nothing of that. Adelaide gave him a stump of candle and left him alone, and as soon as the door was shut he fell to his knees and tore open the kit-bag. For the next minute or so his shaking hands worked busily, and then he lay on the bed, breathed deeply, and felt everything dissolve and soak away into oblivion. Very soon he was lost in a profound sleep. Nothing would awaken him for the best part of twenty-four hours. He was safe. But he had nearly given up in Limehouse. The Chinaman, 
the smoke. An opium den, of course. And Bedwell was a slave to the mighty drug. He slept. And something of great importance to Sally slept with him. The Gentleman of Kent Three nights later, Sally had the nightmare again. And yet it wasn't a nightmare, she felt herself protesting. It was too real. The terrible heat. She couldn't move. She was bound hand and foot in the darkness. Footsteps. And the screaming starting so suddenly and so close to her. Endless screaming and screaming. The light flickering towards her, her face behind it, two faces, blank sheets of white with open, horrified mouths, nothing more. Voices from the dark. Look, look at him, my God! And then she woke. Or rather surfaced like a swimmer in mortal fear of drowning. She heard herself sobbing and gasping and remembered, There's no father. You're alone. You must do without him. You must be strong. With an enormous effort, she made herself stop crying. She pushed aside the suffocating bedclothes and let the cold night air drench her with chill. Only when she was well and truly shivering, the nightmare heat gone, did she cover herself again. But it was a long time before she slept. Next morning, another letter arrived. She evaded Mrs. Rees as soon as breakfast was over and opened the letter in her bedroom. It had been forwarded by the lawyer like the previous one, but the stamp was British this time and the writing educated. She took out the single sheet of cheap paper and sat up sharply. Foreland House, Swale Ness, Kent, October the 10th, 1872. Dear Miss Lockhart, we have not met. You have never heard my name, and only the fact that many years ago I knew your father well could excuse my writing to you. I read in the newspaper of the unfortunate affair at Cheapside, and I recalled that Mr. Temple of Lincoln's Inn used to be your father's lawyer. I trust that this letter will reach you. I understand that your father is no more. Please accept my deep condolences. But the fact of his death and certain circumstances in my own recent affairs make it necessary for me to speak to you as a matter of urgency. I can say no more at the moment than the three facts that, firstly, it concerns the siege of Lucknow, secondly, that an item of incalculable value is involved, and finally, that your personal safety is at present under a deadly threat. Please, Miss Lockhart, take care and heed this warning. For the sake of my friendship with your father, for the sake of your own life... Come as soon as you can and hear what I have to say. There are reasons why I cannot come to you. Allow me to sign myself as what I have been, without your knowledge, throughout your life, namely, your good friend, George Marchbanks. Sally read it twice, astonished beyond measure. If her father and Mr. Marchbanks had been friends, why had she not heard his name until the letter from the Far East? And what was this danger? The Seven Blessings. 
Of course, he must know what her father had discovered. Her father had written to him, knowing that a letter would be safe there. She had a little money in her purse. Putting on her cloak, she went downstairs quietly and left the house. She sat in the train, feeling as if she were at the beginning of a military campaign. She was sure that her father would have planned it coolly, staking out lines of communication and strongholds and forging alliances. Well, she must do the same. Mr. Marchbanks claimed to be an ally, and at the very least he would be able to tell her something. Nothing was worse than not knowing the threat that hung over you. She watched the grey edge of the city give way to the edge of the grey countryside and gazed at the sea to her left. There were never less than five or six ships visible, scudding up the Thames estuary before a brisk east wind, or steaming effortfully down into the teeth of it. The town of Swale Ness was not very large. She decided not to take a cab from the station, but to husband her money and walk, having learned from the porter that Forland House was an easy step away, not more than a mile. Along the seafront, and then take the river path, he said. She set out at once. The town was cheerless and cold, and the river a muddy creek that wound its way among salt flats before entering that distant line of grey that was the sea. The tide was out. The scene was desolate, with only one human being to be seen. This was a photographer. He had set up his camera, together with a little portable darkroom that all photographers in those days had to use, right in the centre of the narrow path beside the river. He looked an amiable young man, and since she could see no sign of a foreland, far less a house on it, she decided to ask him the way. "'You're the second person who's passed me already going that way,' he said. "'The house is over there, the long, low place.' He pointed to a grove of stunted trees half a mile further on. "'Who was the other person?' asked Sally. "'An old woman who looked like one of the witches from Macbeth,' he said. This allusion was lost on Sally, Seeing her puzzlement, he went on, "'Wrinkled, don't you know, and hideous, and so forth.' "'Oh, I see,' she said. "'My card,' said the young man. He produced the white slip of pasteboard deftly from nowhere like a conjurer. It read, "'Frederick Garland, photographic artist,' and gave an address in London. She looked at him again, liking him. His face was humorous, his straw-coloured hair stiff and tousled, his expression alert and intelligent. "'Forgive my asking,' she said, "'but what are you photographing?' "'The landscape,' he said. "'Not much of one, is it? I wanted something dismal, do you see. I'm experimenting with a new combination of chemicals. I've got an idea that it'll be more sensitive in recording this kind of light than the usual stuff.' "'Collodion,' she said. "'That's right. Are you a photographer?' "'No, but my father used to be interested... <sighs> "'Anyway, I, I must get on. "'Thank you, Mr. Garland.' "'He smiled cheerfully and turned back to his camera. "'The path curved, following the muddy bank of the river, "'and finally brought her out behind the grove of trees. "'There, as the photographer had described it, was the house, "'covered in peeling stucco and with several tiles missing from the roof.' and the garden, too, was overgrown and untidy. A more unhappy-looking place she had never seen. She shivered slightly. She stepped into the little porch and was about to ring the bell when the door opened and a man came out. 
He put his finger to his lips and shut the door, taking great care not to make a sound. Please, he whispered. Not a word. This way, quickly. Sally followed, amazed, as he led her swiftly around the side of the house and into a little glass-paned veranda. He shut the door behind her, listened hard, and then held out his hand. Miss Lockhart, he said. I am Major Marchbanks. She shook his hand. He was aged, she supposed, about sixty. His complexion was sallow, and his clothes hung loosely on him. His eyes were dark and fine, though sunk in deep hollows. His voice was familiar in some odd way, and there was an intensity in his expression that frightened her, until she realised that he himself was frightened too, much more than she was. "'Your letter came this morning,' she said. "'Did my father write and ask you to see me?' "'No,' he sounded surprised. "'Then does the phrase, the seven blessings, mean anything to you?' "'It had no effect at all. "'Major Marchbanks looked blank. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'Did you come here to ask me that?' "'I'm so sorry. "'Did he... your father?' "'She told him quickly about her father's last voyage "'and about the letter from the East and the death of Mr. Higgs. "'He put his hand to his brow. "'He looked utterly crushed and bewildered. "'There was a small deal table on the veranda "'and a wooden chair by the door. "'He offered her the chair and then spoke in a low voice. "'I have an enemy.' Miss Lockhart, and that enemy is now yours, too. She... It is a woman... is quite, quite evil. She is in this house, now, which is why we must hide out here and why you must leave very soon. Your father... But why? What have I done to her? Who is she? Please. I can't explain now. I shall, believe me. I know nothing of what caused your father's death. Nothing of the seven blessings, nothing of the South China Sea, nothing of the shipping trade. He could not have known about the evil which has fallen on me, and which now... I can't help you. I can do nothing. His trust was misplaced yet again. Again? She saw a look of desperate unhappiness cross his face. It was the look of a man utterly without hope, and it frightened her. She could only think of the letter from the East. "'Did you once live in Chatham?' she said. "'Yes, uh, a long time ago. "'But please, there's no time. "'Take this.' He opened a drawer in the table and took out a package wrapped in brown paper. It was about six inches long and sealed with string and sealing wax. This will tell you everything. Perhaps, since he said nothing to you about it, I shouldn't either. You will have a shock when you read this. Please be ready for it. But your life's in danger, whether you know it or not, and at least you'll know why. She took the package. Her hands were trembling badly. He saw it and for one strange moment took them in both his and bent his head over them. Then a door opened. He sprang away, grey-faced, and a middle-aged woman looked round the door. "'Major, she's in the ground, sir,' she said. "'In the garden.' 
She looked as unhappy as he did, and a strong smell of drink drifted from her. Major Marchbanks beckoned to Sally. Through the door, he said. Thank you, Mrs. Thorpe. Quickly now. The woman stood clumsily aside and tried to smile as Sally squeezed past her. The Major led her swiftly through the house, and she had an impression of empty rooms, bare floors, echoes, and dampness and misery. His fear was catching. Please, she said as they reached the front door, who is this enemy? I don't know anything. You must tell me her name, at least. She's called Mrs. Holland, he whispered, opening the door a crack. He peered through. Please, I beg you, leave now. You came on foot? You're young, strong, swift. Don't wait. Go direct to town. Oh, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. Those words were so intensely spoken, with a sob in his voice. And she was outside, and he shut the door. Barely ten minutes after she had arrived, she was leaving again. She looked up at the blank, peeling wall of the house, and thought, Was this enemy watching? She set off along the weed-grown drive, past the grove of dark trees, and back onto the track by the river. The tide was coming in. A sluggish flow stirred the edges of the muddy bank. There was no sign of the photographer, unfortunately. The landscape was utterly bare. She hurried onwards, very conscious of the package in her bag. Halfway along the river bank, she stopped and looked back. What made her look, she did not know, but she saw a small figure rounding the trees, a woman dressed in black, an old woman. She was too far away to see plainly, but she was hurrying after Sally. Her little black shape was the only purposeful element in all that grey wilderness. Sally hastened on until she reached the main road and looked back again. It was as if the little black figure was coming in with the tide. She was no further behind and even seemed to be gaining. Where could Sally hide? The road to the town curved around slightly away from the sea and she thought that if she were to take a side road while she was out of sight she might. Then she saw something better still. The photographer stood on the sea front beside his little tent, consulting an instrument of some sort. She looked back. The little black figure was hidden by the end of the terrace of seafront houses. She ran up to the photographer, who looked up in surprise, and then grinned with pleasure. It's you, he said. Please, she said. Can you help me? Of course, glad to. What can I do? I'm being followed. That old woman, she's after me. She's dangerous. I don't know what to do. His eyes sparkled with pleasure. In the tent, he said, lifting the flap. Don't move, or you'll knock things over. Never mind the smell. She did as he said, and he dropped the flap and laced it up. The smell was fierce, something like smelling salts. It was completely dark. Don't speak, he said quietly. I'll tell you when she's gone. My word, here she comes now. She's crossing the road, coming towards us. Sally stood motionless, listening to the crying of the gulls, the clop of horses and trundle of wheels as a carriage went along the road, and then the sharp, swift tread of a pair of nailed boots. It stopped only a yard or so away. Excuse me, sir, said a voice an old voice that seemed to wheeze and click in some odd way. 
Hmm? What is it? Garland's voice was muffled. Uh, wait a moment, I'm composing a picture. Can't come out from under the cloth until it's ready. There, more clearly. Well, ma'am? Have you seen a young girl come this way, sir? A girl dressed in black? Oh, yes, I have. Devil of a hurry. Remarkably pretty girl. Blonde. Would that be the one? Just a handsome gentleman like you to notice that, sir. Yeah, she's the one, bless her. Did you see which way she went? As a matter of fact, she asked me the way to the swan, said she wanted the Ramsgate coach. I told her she had ten minutes to catch it. The swan, sir? Where might that be? He gave directions, and the old woman thanked him and set off. Don't move, he said in a low voice. She hasn't turned the corner yet. Afraid you'll have to stay among the stinks for a while. Thank you she said formally. Though you need not have tried to flatter me. Oh dear, all right. I take it back. You're almost as ugly as she is. Look, what is going on? Oh, I just don't know. I'm all mixed up in something horrible. I can't tell you what it is. Shh! Footsteps approached slowly, past the tent, and faded away. Fat man with a dog, he said. Gone now. Is she out of sight? Yes, she's vanished. To Ramsgate, with any luck. May I come out? He unlaced the flap and held it open. Oh, thank you, she said. May I pay you for the use of your tent? His eyes opened wide. For a moment she thought he was going to laugh, but he politely declined. She felt herself beginning to blush. She should not have offered money. She turned away swiftly. Don't go! he said. I don't even know your name. That payment I will exact. Sally Lockhart, she said, staring out to sea. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult you, but I'm not insulted at all. But you can't expect to pay for everything, you know. What are you going to do now? She felt very like a child. It was not a sensation she liked. I'm going back to London, she said. I expect I shall manage to avoid her. Goodbye. Would you like a companion? I've nearly finished here, in any case, and if that old weasel is dangerous... No, thank you, I, I must be going. She walked away. She would have loved his company, but she would never have admitted it. She felt somehow that the pretense of helplessness, which worked so well with other men, would not take him in for a moment. That was why she had offered to pay him. She wanted to meet him on equal terms. But that had gone wrong, too. She felt as if she knew nothing, and could do nothing correctly, and she felt very alone.